As they got into the boat, they had no idea what was in store for them. They thought this would just be a short 13-kilometer trip across the lake. There was a few other boats making the trip with them, and everything was going along fine until fierce winds came gusting down over the surrounding hills and whipped the surface of the water into a maelstrom. Now several of these men were seasoned fishermen, but as waves crashed over the, the boat and began to fill the boat, and, and the, they were worried that the boat was beginning to sink, they flew into a panic. All of them, that is, except one. And they found him asleep in the stern of the boat. And they cried out to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he, he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea and said, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. In Job 26, Job testifies of the ways that God stretches out the, the world over the void and hangs, hangs it on nothing. And he binds up the waters in thick clouds, and the cloud does not split open under them. And Job continues for several verses in, in this way, and then declares in verse 14, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. How can... And how small a whisper do we hear of him? But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Well, this morning we're considering the thunder of God's power. And again, we're diving into unfathomably deep waters. And we are reliant on his power even to begin to understand these things. And, and so we pray that the Lord will do that in our hearts and our minds and that he will, will cause us to dive down deep into who he really is and he will cause our hearts to rise up in worship in response to who he is. Last week we examined God's wisdom, his omniscience, his ability to know the best possible outcome and to bring it about in all of history and in the lives of his people. Well, this morning we're looking at God's omnipotence, his, that God is all-powerful. And again, quoting Robert Raymond, what the scriptures intend when they ascribe omnipotence to God is that God has the power to do whatever it takes power to do. God has power to do whatever it takes power to do. In other words, God can do and does all of his holy will. Quoting Isaiah 46, verses 9 to 11, God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand that I will accomplish all of my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Last week we heard Jaya Packer's explanation of the relationship between God's wisdom and God's power. Power is as much God's essence, he said, as wisdom is. 
Omniscience governing omnipotence. Infinite power ruled by infinite wisdom. He said that, that this is a basic biblical description of the, divine, of the divine character. He says that wisdom without power would be pathetic, a broken reed, and that power without wisdom would be merely frightening. But God in boundless wisdom and endless power are united, and this makes him utterly worthy of our fullest trust. We're talking here again about God's sovereignty, about God's power over all things. We, we just sang the, the song, How Great Thou Art, by, by Stuart Hyde, and, and you probably aren't aware of the, the story behind, behind that hymn. But, but he was inspired to write it as, on his missionary travels through the Carpathian Mountains in Central Asia. And on one outing, he was, was stranded as a storm brewed in the distance, stranded in the mountains. And he, he heard the, the mighty thunder echoing through the mountains. And so he was inspired to write the first verse. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. That's, he, he witnessed just, again, the outskirts of God's power. Just a shadow of God's power, even in something as powerful as a, as a thunderstorm in the mountains. But then heading, heading into, the, um, into, the mountain, into the mountain frontier, into, into Romania, his, his travels took him through beautiful forests. And so he wrote the second verse. When through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees, when I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze. He, he was inspired by God's creation to, to, and, and the glory of his providence in seeing what, what the, the, the awesome sovereignty, the omnipotence, omnipotence of God. But it's in verse 3 that, that we see what I believe is, is what we can witness as the greatest display of God's mighty power as he witnessed the salvation of many of the villagers to whom he was witnessing to. He said, when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burdens gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. So we see in, the, in that hymn, we see the amazing, three amazing displays of God's power. God's power in creation, God's power in providence, and God's power in salvation. And throughout God's word, we, we see we see that testimony is given to God's omnipotence in these, especially in these three ways. So let's look at the power of God on display in creation, in providence, and in salvation. Again, each one of these could be many, many sermons. Many, many books have been written on each one, so, so I'm probably a little in over my head, but let's rely on God's power to, to bring these truths home to our hearts. So first of all, God's power in creation. Well, God's power in creation is really the logical place to start because that's where the universe started. Right? It's also where the Bible starts. In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
So we see at the beginning, we see God's power in creation. We also see it at the end in Revelation 4.1. Worthy are you, O Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created, your, you created all things by your will. They existed and were created. So it's there at the beginning of the Bible, it's there at the end of the Bible, and it's there all through the Bible from the beginning to the end. It's in the Psalms, it's in the Prophets, it's in, the, in the, the Narratives, it's in the New Testament. Just one verse, Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. You know, one day the, the Lord is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. But until that time, it really behooves us to, to seek to, to look to God in his, in his creation and to see all that He is doing and in, in all that He has done in, in bringing all the glor glorious things we see around, him, around us. We know that God made those things by His sovereign power with a word. With a word. And so we worship. So often we tend to take for granted all that the Lord has created. But He has given us those things in order to, to give us a glimpse. Again, this is the outskirts of His power that, that we can see. There's under, uh, this is called general revelation. Okay, the, the, relation, the, the revelation that we can see, revelation is what is revealed. And in general, everybody has this testimony of God's <coughs> revelation. But sinful man tries to deny God as creator. Sinful man tries to deny God as creator. And it's not just since Darwin developed his theory of evolution. In the Old Testament, in, during that time, we, we can read about Babylonianism, and they claimed that, that, that Baal was the creator. Or in New Testament times, we can, we can read of, of Roman mythology, and they, they credited Jupiter as being the creator. Or in more recent times, in the 6th century, Islam was spawned, claiming that, that Allah is the creator. But it really wasn't until the publication of Darwin's Origin of Species in 1859 that anybody had seriously tried to rule out deity in creation. Prior to, to the 19th century, people took for granted that there was a creator. It was just commonly thought. They didn't always necessarily believe and often didn't believe that it was the God of the Bible who was the creator, but, but it wasn't until the 19th century when, when people began, through Darwin's influence, began to, to disbelieve that there was a God who had made everything. Darwin made three main propositions in his book. It's outlined in, uh, as outlined in Philip Johnson's book, Darwin on Trial. Now, I don't agree with everything that, that Johnson writes in his book, but it's a really helpful way of, of, of looking at, at the, the errors and the flaws in, in Darwinianism and in, his, in Darwin's theories. So three main things. That species change and that new species have appeared during the long course of Earth's history. And two, that this evolutionary process accounts for nearly all of the, the diversity of life because all living things descend from a very small number of common ancestors, perhaps a single microscopic ancestor. Okay, that's from, from, I've heard this said, it's from, from goo to the zoo to you. Sorry, from goo, from goo to you by means of the zoo. Okay, that's, that's one of the things that, that from in the, the primordial swamp 
that, that these organisms somehow came together and through the, the processes of evolution and eventually became human beings. Okay? And three, that this process was guided by natural selection or survival of the fittest so that there is no need for a creator. You know, it's really shocking that this theory would ever be considered valid, given the fact that, that among many, many things, there's a, <clears throat> there's a complete absence of transitional species in the fossil record. Okay, there's, there's nothing that is almost a fish in the fossil, <clears throat> the fossil record, or almost a, 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 a reptile, or almost a mammal. Okay, there, there's nothing in between in the fossil record, nothing. Okay, there's also no transitional structures. There's nothing that is almost an eye. Okay, now granted, an eye wouldn't really be fossilized, but there's nothing that is, is almost an arm or almost a foot. There's nothing, no evidence at all in the fossil record. Darwin had said in order for his theory to be valid, he, he believed that there would be many, many transitional forms in the fossil record, but there's nothing. There is no evidence whatsoever. It really takes more faith to believe evolution than it does simply to believe that God created the earth like he said he did in Genesis 1 and, and into the Bible. Now Genesis 1 is, is really not meant to give a detailed scientific account of, of all that, that God did in creation. That is not the main point of that narrative. But the question we need to ask is, God, did God do it or didn't God do it? Are we going to believe what God's Word says, or are we, are we going to believe what a man said, or what our own foolish imaginations say? Because when people try to explain away God's Word, any part of God's Word, what they're really doing is they're setting themselves above God's Word. They're really setting themselves, even trying to set themselves above God. In John 1, 1-3, we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Now that passage that John wrote there is meant deliberately to mirror Genesis 1.1. Later on in verse 14, John identifies the Word as Jesus Christ. He is the Word become flesh. God's Word is effective. God's Word is powerful. God speaks and things happen. We can also look to Colossians 1, 15 and 16, speaking of, of Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. God is sovereign over creation. He created all things. And that brings us to God's power and providence. The next verse, Colossians 1.17, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Now you do understand that Jesus is the Creator. Right? God the Son is the Creator. And He didn't just create all things, He holds everything together. Hebrews 1.3, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
That's why Jesus was able to be asleep in the back of the boat in, in Mark chapter 4. Because he was sovereign. Because he was controlling the universe. And just stop and think about that for a second. Jesus was there, asleep in a boat, and he was still upholding the universe by his sovereign power. I confess, I do not understand how that works, but God's word testifies to that fact. That as Jesus walked through his creation, he was every bit as much the omnipotent God then as he has been through all history, as he continues to be at this moment. And Jesus is still upholding the universe by His sovereign power. Everything, every molecule, every proton, every neutron, every electron is, is all held together by the sovereign power of God. It's enough to make your brain spin. But now when we think specifically of God's providence, <clears throat> there's an excellent definition in the 1689 London Baptist Confession. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. That's God's providence. And, and again, there's many sermons there just in that one paragraph. I commend that to you to go and read and to, to meditate on, maybe in your families, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, speaking there specifically of God's providence. C.H. Spurgeon, Marvel of God's Providence, I, I love this quote. He says, I cannot comprehend it. I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is, is steered as the stars in their courses. That nothing, no speck of dust is too small to be under God's control. And, and no planet, no star. Think about that as you don't look at the eclipse tomorrow. Think about the fact that even the, the stars from the heavens and in the heavens are all controlled by God's sovereign power. There's nothing too small and there's nothing too great to be under God's authority. When we think of, of, God's, of God's providence, we also think about the, this meaning that God, God provides. That God provides. The word providence comes from the Latin word providentia, which means foresight, precaution, and foreknowledge. And essentially, providence means that God is a generous caretaker. God is a generous caretaker. He doesn't just provide for our needs, He does so abundantly. God provides for every need of every single living thing on the entire planet. And if there are life on other planets, which I'm not convinced there is, He'd be providing for their needs too. If God is providing for, for everything, we can trust that He is providing for us. His providence is exhaustive. It extends to every corner of His creation. 
uh, Luke read for us earlier Psalm 104 that, that gloriously declares God's providence for his creation, provides water and, and causes plants to grow for, for livestock and for birds, for wild animals, and for us. And in verses 27 and 28, we see that God's entire creation looks to him for their food in due season. And all of this causes praise to well up in the heart of the psalmist, and so it should for us. That God provides for all of your needs. Every bite of food that you put in your mouth is as much provided by God as the manna was provided for the children of Israel in the wilderness. Think about that next time you, you bow your head before you meal to, to give thanks. Remember that, that, that God has provided. This, when we say grace, this is not just a, some, I hope anyway, it's not just some, some pattern or some duty that we do, but it's actually a giving of thanks for God's providential giving of this meal to us. So I wonder, is God able to provide for your needs? I'm not just talking about what you want here, but what you need. I know I'm thankful that, that God in His infinite wisdom has not given me, given me everything that I want. He has withheld things that in, in His providential plan, in His wise care for me in my life, He has decreed and determined that, that those things are not best for me, so He has withheld them. He has only ever given me things that were, that were good and, and helpful to my soul. I'm going to talk more about this in our series in the Lord's Prayer, but, but do you realize that your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him? God knows what you need before you even, you even ask Him. Now, you can read that in, in Matthew 6, 7. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, that God is more eager to bless you God is more eager to bless you even than you are eager to be blessed. Because He is your sovereign, heavenly Father. And so with that, Jesus exhorts us not to be anxious, but to trust God who provides. He says in Matthew 6.25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body and what you put on. Is not life more than food? Is not your body more than clothing? And in verse 26, he, he presents the birds as, a, as an example, saying, They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them, and are, are you not of more value than they? He's arguing here from the lesser to the greater. He's, he's demonstrating that this lesser example of the birds will prove the greater. If, if God is providing for mere birds, He is also surely going to provide for His children. And you can be confident that everything that you need will come to you from your sovereign God, from your heavenly Father. But again, sinful people try to deny God's providence. They, they take credit for the th things that they do, or, or give credit to some false God, saying that it, that it comes from, from, from Mother Nature, or, or from, from Allah, or, or Buddha, or whoever. But, but we need to realize that it's not just pagans, not just people out there who, who do this that we can tend to do it as well. That, that we can far too easily tend to, to take credit for, for the good things in our lives. To, to, to think that it's, it's when you, if you think about your job and you think about, you, you, you 
in your mind determine, oh, it's because of, of my abilities or, or, or my whatever that got you this, but not to, to give the glory to God. So when we, when we think about the fact, think about what, what God has given you in your life. Again, did your wisdom get your job? Get your job? Did, did your charm and, and good looks get you your spouse? I'd be in big trouble if God was not gracious in his provision. Did your goodness get you your salvation? No. It's all God's grace. God is sovereign in his providence. And then, so then this takes us to our, our final point and the greatest display of God's power. God's power in redemption. God does not just provide for the physical needs of his creatures, he also provides for the spiritual needs of his creatures. And he provides salvation for his elect. He provides salvation for his elect. He did so in his sovereign power through the provision of his son for our sins. In the most awesome display of God's mighty power, this is more glorious than the, than the parting of the Red Sea, more glorious than, than, than speaking the, the universe into existence with a word. God provided the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29. Was it because of our righteousness or our wisdom or our strength that we could be saved? But God shows his love for us in this, that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. Unless we try to separate the work of the, the Son from that of the Father, Jesus said in John 10 that the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And in verses 17 and 18, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So it wasn't just that the Father sent the Son. The Son willingly came to be a sacrifice out of, out of love for His Heavenly Father, out of love for His Bride. He came to be the sacrificial Lamb who would take away the sins of the world. It's not just God the Father and God the Son who are actively involved in redemption. It's not just Jesus standing and waiting and impatiently knocking at the door of your heart for you to let Him in. All three members of the Trinity are actively involved in your salvation, powerfully, omnipotently involved in every aspect of the salvation of the elect. We saw this as, as we read in John 3, that the Holy Spirit plays a powerful, indispensable role in our salvation. John said, Jesus said in John 3, 3, that unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. You can't even see the kingdom unless you're born again. And he goes on to explain that, that being, born is a, being born again is a work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit caused you to be born again. And so we can, we can trust that the one who, who brought us into, that brought us into to life in his sovereign power and creation and, and providence also brings us to spiritual life in the work of his Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit does that work of regeneration, again, of taking out that, that stony heart of rebellion and giving you a heart of love and worship to God. And this is the greatest display of God's power that we can witness. C.H. Spurgeon said that it was easier for God to bring Israel out of Egypt, to split the Red Sea and make a highway through a pathless wilderness, to drop manna from heaven, to send a whirlwind to drive out the kings. It was easier for omnipotence to do all of this than to translate a man from the power of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. He said this is the greatest achievement of omnipotence. The sustenance of the whole universe, I do believe, is even less than this, the changing of a bad heart, the subduing of an iron will. But thanks be to the Father, for He has done all that for you and for me. But again, sinful people try to deny this as well. They deny that salvation is a sovereign work of God. In the 4th century, the British monk Pelagius taught that original sin did not contaminate the human nature. And so that the human will is still capable of choosing God without God's help. Similarly, in the 16th century, Jacobus Arminius taught that man is able to respond favorably to God without God's help. Arminius also taught that, that God looked through the corridors of time and chose those who would choose him. He was denying God's sovereignty. He's saying that, that God is helpless apart from merely to respond to the, the free will of human beings, of sinful human beings. This is a horrible twisting of Romans 8.29, that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Divine foreknowledge, as we saw last week, isn't just knowing what will happen. That God is, the Almighty God is actually decreeing what would happen. Because for, for, for God in His in His wisdom, knowing is doing. God is, in His sovereignty, is the one who does all of the, these things. His, his omniscience and His omnipotence are tied together. They, they are part of His nature. And so this, this foreknowledge that... that Paul speaks of in Romans 8.29 is, is intimate knowledge. Again, we talked about this a little, a little bit last week. It's, it's the same word that is used in the Old Testament to describe the knowledge of a, that a husband has for his wife. This is not a knowledge of what they're going to do. This is a knowledge of who, of who they are. It's intimate knowledge. So we would ask them, well, what is the difference between someone who's saved and somebody who isn't saved? Who makes the difference? It's only God's grace. If, if God's salvation came by, by anything that we did, we would be able to take credit, even if we could take just a little bit of credit. We'd be robbing God of, of His glory. And to rob God of even a little bit of His glory is to deny God. It is to deny who He is. Salvation is a gift from God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Romans 6.23 We talked about this extensively in our studies of Ephesians, that, that you were dead in your sins and trespasses. You were dead, not wounded, not sick, not even dying. You were dead. I was dead. 
was following the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so were you. But then in Ephesians 2.4 came all the, those two words that make all the difference. But God. You were dead. But God. Even when you were dead, God made you alive with Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes on to highlight the manner of your salvation in verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. God did it, and God did it alone. Do you know what the word synergy means? Synergy means when, when, when two parties cooperate to bring about some end. Okay, so if you work together with somebody to... To, like my dad and I have been, been working together to build that play structure. It's a long-going project, ongoing project in the backyard. But when my dad and I are working together to build it, that's synergy. Your salvation isn't like that. Your salvation is not two parties working together. Your salvation is, the, the fancy word is monergistic. Mono, one, and ergo meaning work. It is one person working to achieve your salvation. God alone did everything that is required for your salvation. God did it all. You, all you brought to the table was your sin. God did everything for you to be saved. What a comfort. That our salvation from, from beginning to end, we could, we could talk about the, the fact that God, who, who began a good work in us, will also bring it to completion in Christ Jesus, from Philippians 1.6. We could, we could talk about that, 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 that God is sovereign over every aspect of your creation. And again, this is, this is a topic for many, many sermons. But, but from, gift, from the first to the last, your salvation is a gift from God. He is not only the author of your salvation, he is also the perfecter of your salvation. Hebrews 12, 2. So we can have comfort. We can have hope that, that God is, is powerful and we can see his power in his creation. We can see his power in his providence. We can see his power in his salvation. But I, I neglected to, to talk about that, that last verse from Stuart Hines' hymn. Then Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home. What joy will fill my heart. Then I shall cry with humble adoration. How great my God, or my God, how great thou art. There is one final aspect of God's power that is yet to be seen. That's his return. Jesus is coming home. To, to, he's coming to take his people home, to be with him forever. He is coming back for his bride. One day we will see him. One day everyone will see him as the, as the, the, as the, the lightning shines from the east and goes to the west. Every eye will see him. But for those who do not know Him, who have not received Him as Lord and Savior, they will be crying on the, the rocks to, to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. But He's coming back for us in His power. He is coming to take us home. 
that, that there's a hymn that's, that's based on that's based on, on Mark chapter 4, the, 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 the illustration that I used at the beginning. It's called Be Still My Soul. And in that hymn, the, the, the hymn writer says that, that be still my soul, for the, the winds and waves still know the voice of him who ruled them while he dwelt below. He is still ruling over the winds and the waves. He is still ruling over every aspect of your life. He is still working all things together for your good and His glory. You can trust Him. He is coming to take you home. The one who made the sea still controls it. The one who made you and saved you still controls your circumstances. So you can say, my God, how great. Thou art. Let's pray together.